0: The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com.
1: Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 5, 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Well, good morning. If you are new here, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors. And this morning, we're going to be dealing with some very important topics. Jesus here, in the scripture we just heard read, is teaching us about the dangers of anger, broken relationships, and murder. Now these topics are universally important, but just days after one of the most divisive presidential elections in history, um, an election season that really has revealed just how deeply divided we are as a country. We're almost split down the middle 50-50, blue and red. And the divisions between blue and red are getting further and further apart. It seems that if things don't change, we could be on the brink of another civil war. Now, I'm not speaking today to the culture at large. I'm speaking to the church of Jesus Christ. I'm speaking to Christians who claim Jesus as their king. If we can't show the world a better way, if we can't live without the anger that destroys our relationships, I don't think there's any hope for our country. In other words, if the church can't lead the way in peace, reconciliation, and healing with the spirit of Jesus in their hearts, how are we to expect people without Jesus to do so? And it's very easy to say, oh, it's just... It's just Christians versus the unchristians until you look at the data. The data says, no, it's not Christians or non-Christians. It's basically Republicans and Democrats. And it's even more divided by Christian Republicans and Christian Democrats, which is a shame. I'm going to read the text this morning and I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the spirit to help us. Jesus speaking here, remember last week he said that the righteousness of the Christian must exceed that of the unchristian, right? Or must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. What he's, what he's doing now is going to give us six examples of how Christian righteousness should exceed that of those who are under the law, those in the Old Testament. Here's his first vignette, okay? Here's his first example of a righteousness that exceeds through the power of the gospel. You've heard that it was said to those of old, speaking about the old covenant, the Old Testament, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, see here it is, you've heard, but I say to you, Jesus elevating things again, that everyone who is angry with his brother, now he's not speaking here to your specific brother or sister, he's speaking to your brother in the faith, your sister in the faith, your Christian brother Or Christian sister will be liable, but it does include your brother too, obviously. I'm not, okay, will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Father God, we thank you for drawing us here. We thank you for making this space available to us. We thank you for the opportunity to gather to worship your name. And now, as we hear your word, we want to just repeat back to you what you've already told us, that we can't understand it without your Holy Spirit illuminating it for us, that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And so would you give life to your word this morning, give life through your word this morning? Would you enable me, a broken, sinful man, to preach your word and to do it, um, to do it well this morning, Father? Would you hide me behind your pulpit? Would you shine a big light on Jesus and a big light on your word? Would you help lead your people who sit in darkness into a great light? Would you think, through my mind, and speak through my vocal cords. Would it be all of you and none of me for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Jesus here is restating the sixth commandment. The sixth commandment is two words, quite simply, never murder. We should ask ourselves right away, what does it mean to murder? Well, the Greek word used here is phoneo, and the Hebrew word from the Old Testament is tersa. And the the words specifically mean to putting someone to death improperly for selfish reasons. Now, that's important because many people don't understand that actually killing someone and murdering someone are two separate things. Both of them are serious and the result in the end of life. But the sixth commandment and what Jesus says here is not you shall not kill. It is you shall not murder. The Greek and Hebrew words here cover our kind of modern categories of murder, homicide, suicide, and manslaughter. What is not included is the legal putting to death, such as the just and legal use of force by the military, by the police, through the judicial system, and even self-defense by citizens. Now, why is that the case, and what's the difference? To understand the difference, we need to understand that every command that's given by God every one of the 10 commandments also has a flip side to the commandment. You shall not murder. Remember, we gotta get to the heart of the law. The heart of the command of you shall not murder is you must honor the life of other human beings. In other words, you must protect the lives of, of other human beings. See, every command has a positive and a negative side to it. So this commandment is also teaching the sanctity and the preciousness of all human life. In fact, in Genesis chapter 9 verses 5 through 6, where God says that if a person commits murder, they should be killed, he gives his reason. He says because God made man in his own image. See the reasoning here. See the logical progression. God says that human beings have been stamped with his image. That we are different from the rest of creation. Human beings have been created by God with an inherent dignity, value, and worth that is different and distinct and greater than All of the animals combined because there is something about us that reflects our Maker to the world in a special way. So, when we look at another human being, we should see something about God that is different. You don't see that when you look at an animal. Every individual human life is sacred, every individual person is of infinite value because they've been made in the image of God. So the purpose of this commandment is to get everyone, listen, this is how C.S. Lewis described it, to get everyone to feel the weight of their neighbor's glory. There's something weighty about human beings, something divine, something sacred. We should feel the weight of the value that God has invested in every human being. And for Christians... The lives of other people should be so dear and important to us that we consider it our responsibility to defend them and protect them from harm. And so, to kill another person while trying to protect the life of another is not murder someone breaks into your home and you are protecting your family, you're protecting your children and you kill that person, that is not murder. You see a man attacking a woman on the street and you get involved and you end up taking his life, that is not murder. That is a positive good. That is a virtue. You, there's an active shooter situation and you conceal carry and you draw your weapon and you kill the shooter, that is not murder, that is a virtue. Because we value all life and every person is made in the image of God, we are willing to fight to protect that life. It is the image of God, it is the, our neighbor's glory that would drive us to put ourselves in harm's way to protect them. And so to take the life of an attacker is not the same thing as murder. Theologian Mark Rooker in his exposition of the Ten Commandments says this about murder. Hear this, it's important. Any act of violence against an individual out of hatred, anger, malice, deceit, or for personal gain in whatever circumstances and whatever method that might result in death even if the killing was not intention, must be classified as murder. But human, be- but human beings being made in the image of God has another implication as well. When a c- person commits murder, they aren't just committing a crime against an individual. They're not just committing a crime against a family or a society or a community. They are committing a crime against all those things, but they're also committing a crime against God himself. Think of it like this. To be made in God's image is to bear his image. It is to be his representative. It is similar to one of our diplomats who work in other countries on our behalf. They bear our nation's image. They carry our seal within them. And if a person was to commit a crime against them, it wouldn't just be against them and their family. It would also be against, against our nation. And therefore, the consequences of killing one of, our demo, one of our diplomats is even greater than just personal murder. It's against our nation as a whole. So it is with murder. To commit a murder is to lash out at the image of God. It is to strike out at God himself. And so God says, the punishment for murder is extreme. A life for a life. So I want you to see here that God takes human life very seriously. Every human carries his image and therefore it's precious. Sacred even. Now, this is important, and I, th- I want to draw a distinction. I want to shine a light on something because I, don't, I-, I think it's slipped into our culture, and many of us have adopted it, and we don't even know that we've adopted it. God does not say human beings are valuable because they're rational. God does not say human beings are valuable because they are good, productive members of society. God says all human life is precious because they're made in his image. It should be noted that not everyone in our society believes this. What we're talking about here is a specific Jewish and Christian value. This has not come from the world of Islam. The world of Islam seems good people and bad people and it is a productive good to kill people who don't believe in Allah. They don't have, you're an infidel if you don't believe in God and it's a good to kill you. Nor does this come from the predominant religion that's gaining weight today, the religion of secularism. There are many today who believe that the human being is nothing more than self-conscious animal and therefore has no more dignity, value, and worth as any other species. And ideas have consequences. This is an idea that has been propagated largely in the past 100 or so years, and is no coincidence that the 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history. Now, let me run through this secular philosophy really quick. First, it's based in the theory of evolution. Second, it's based usually in atheism, maybe agnosticism at the best. And it runs like this. If there is no God then human beings are not made in his image and they do not have inherent dignity, value, and worth. If we evolved over millions of years from other species and we did that through the survival of the fittest and natural selection, then killing off weaker members of the species and weaker forms of our species is actually a good thing. We should, it is a virtue then in this worldview to kill off the weak because they drain society. They hold back future evolution. You don't want the strong species to mate with a weaker member of that species that would pollute the species and work against the further evolution of the human race. This is called eugenics. This belief was a driving force behind the Nazism in the 40s and allowed Hitler to callously murder millions, listen, of the elderly, the maimed, the Jews, and the gypsies during World War II. They believed that it was a collective good to kill the weak. This is what happens when we remove the image of God from human beings. This is what happens when we say that certain races or certain classes of people or certain abilities deem some people as more valuable than others. Peter Singer is a prominent atheist and professor, hear this, professor of bioethics at Princeton. Bioethics. This is what I want to get across to you. This is his job. He's supposedly one of the smartest guys in our society. He's got an esteemed position at Princeton, where most of us probably would hope our children could get into and sit under his teaching. And his position is that of bioethics. What is ethical about life? I'm going to quote him right now. Quote, human babies are not born self-aware. They are not capable of grasping that they exist over time. They are not persons. Therefore, the life of a newborn is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. Singer believes that there should, and it's teaching it right now, that there should be a one-week waiting period for parents. If there is something wrong with the baby or something they don't like, they should be able to kill it and make another healthier baby, and this would not be wrong in any way because it would bring about more happiness in the world, more happiness to the parents. I want to label this belief. It's called functionalism the belief that what defines a human person's worth and value and dignity is what they can and cannot do. Singer says, quote, again, insofar as some human beings are incapable of reasoning, remembering, and self-awareness, they cannot be considered persons. Put simply, dogs, cats, and dolphins are persons while fetuses newborns and some victims of alzheimer's disease are not now i know these examples are that that those examples seem extreme though that's what's being taught in academy to, in the academy, in in upper echelons of our educational system today. And those beliefs work their way down through society, and those ideas have consequences. And this is why Christian families raise a Christian kid and send them off to public university, and they get confused when they come home with all kind of these crazy ideas. These are not extreme ideas. These are purely logical ideas, purely rational conclusions that come from atheism, secularism, and evolution. They are taking those beliefs to their logical conclusions. Now, how does that affect people today? I've heard people who claim to be Christians advocate for abortion, because the child might have Down syndrome or the child might have a difficult upbringing, one parent or in poverty. I've heard Christians argue for abortion because if the, if the mother had a child in this situation, it would put too much stress on the mother. She's poor. She'd be How can she support these children? She's going to have a difficult life. And so abortion just makes sense functionalism. Or it's going to happen anyway, so we might as well let people do it in a relatively clean and safe space. All of these arguments are functional arguments and they attack the image of God that is inherent in every single human life. And as a result functionalists deem human life as less significant it is only valuable if you have working a, a, a completely working rational mind it is only valuable if you have certain traits that you could be functionally beneficial to society and that is not what scripture teaches, abortion in no way is healthcare. It's death care. Euthanasia, assisted suicide is not healthcare in any way. It is death care. It is promoting a culture of death. Now I know we're getting uncomfortable in here. It's an uncomfortable topic. And right now you might be saying, Well, I came here, to, I came to hear something good. I got discouraged all week long. I came here to hear about Jesus. Well, I'm glad you did. But we need to hear from Jesus sometimes before we hear about Jesus. And Jesus here, surprisingly, doesn't lower this pro, pro-life standard in any way. In fact, for some of us who go, oh wow, man, wow. Yeah, amen, Justin, amen. Glad I'm not a murderer. Glad I'm not promoting the culture of death. Well, Jesus might have a word or two to say to us because Jesus here gets to the heart of the commandment and he says, actually, if you've got anger, unresolved anger in your heart, if you've got animosity toward another brother or sister in Christ, if that anger and animosity has allowed you to cut off another brother and break relationship with them, you are a murderer. Jesus says, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be liable to the fires of hell. Whoever says, you fool, Will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, let me clarify something. Jesus is not condemning saying bad words here. He's not saying the word fool is off limits. Don't say that, Christian. How do we know that? Well, about 15 chapters later, Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, You blind fools. Here's the difference Jesus is not saying, and these words literally mean stupid. That means mentally not capable of following their logical conclusions. And when he says uh, fool, it's, it's moro in the Greek, and that's where we get the term moron. But it's not referring to intellectual ability. It's referring to a heart disposition or character, like we see in Proverbs. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So basically what Jesus is saying, is, you look at somebody and go, they're stupid and they're immoral, right? That's what Jesus is talking about here. But Jesus later calls somebody immoral. He says, you are a fool. Now what he's doing, Jesus is doing something different than we typically do when we do that, right? Jesus is trying to shock someone, trying to kind of, you know, friend, a friend stab somebody in the front, right? Proverbs talks about this, that, that, that sometimes the harsh words, sometimes the harsh say, a friend will wake you up and get your attention. Jesus is trying to provoke and promote repentance from someone. That's how Jesus says it. He's not saying those words to the Pharisees with hatred or animosity in his heart. He's literally saying, you are a blockhead right now, and you are opposing God and God's ways. Repent. Repent, bro. That's what Jesus is saying. But most of us, when we get angry, our anger stirs and simmers inside of us and stirs up pride where we begin to put ourselves on a pedestal and start looking down on others and how could they vote like that? How could they think like that? How could they act like that? And that pride and that anger Begins to stir and kind of turn itself into hatred and animosity in our hearts against a person or a group of people. And then, out of that anger and that hatred, we lash out with our words. We call people stupid, we call people all kinds of things to demean them. We call them names in order, here's what we're doing in order to place them into a category of other that enables us to feel good about not having to reconcile with them, not having to be in relationship with them. We categorize them so we can cut them off. That's what Jesus is condemning here. Philosopher Peter Kreeft says there's four stages to anger. This is important. First, there is simply the emotion itself. Let me tell you, the anger, the emotion of anger is not a sin in any way. Though it may be a psychological difficulty, you might have a problem. All of us are prone to certain things. You might be prone to anger. Anger, the emotion, is not a sin. There's no emotion that's a sin, okay? So just feeling angry is not a sin. Secondly, there is the emotion of anger rightly regulated by reason and scripture. This is the will to justice and correction. You should get angry at things of injustice. Why? That anger is meant to be a motivation to push you out to actually do something and correct the injustice. Anger is a good motivation to, good, to do good in the world. You get angry at poverty. You get angry at broken systems. You get angry at injustice. You're meant to. You get angry even at the disobedience of your children towards their brothers and sisters, and that leads you to get off the couch and actually do something about it. So first, we have the emotion of anger. Second, we have the emotion of anger rightly regulated by reason and scripture. This is why Jesus flipped over tables. This is why Jesus confronted the religious leaders of his day. He was angry and he was moved to to do justice and he did not sin. Third, there is the emotion overstepping the bounds of right reason. And this is the capital sin of anger that Jesus is condemning here. St. Thomas defines this as the desire that another person be punished, quote, who has not deserved it, or beyond his deserts, or contrary to the order prescribed by law, or not for the due end, namely for the maintaining of justice and the correction by a fault. So this is the unjust use of anger. You want someone, let's say you want cap you want somebody to be killed because they stole something. That, that's, that's out of dessert. That's not what that crime does not deserve that kind of punishment. Or you just blow up and let anger overtake you. Finally, there is the fourth stage where anger, unrighteous anger, turns to hatred of God or neighbor. This is why Jesus and the apostle John say in 1 John 3:15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding within them. Now why is this the case? Jesus says in Mark chapter 7 verse 20 that all of our horrible outward behavior murder Gossip, sexual morality, whatever it is, it all comes from our heart. It comes from within, not from without. That means if you are angry enough to hate your brother or sister, you are a murderer in your heart. How many of us have killed people? with our words, our posts, our emotions, or even just our looks. Or maybe we just try to murder them with our silence and our relational distance. We let our bitterness and unforgiveness in our heart turn us into relational murderers. That person is dead to me. Jesus says, this is what Jesus condemns. Listen, murder in the actuality, murder in action, murder in deed comes from the seed of murder. It just comes to fruition with the act of murder. And that seed is anger. That seed is hatred in our heart. Jesus here isn't just condemning the outward behavior. He's getting to the heart of the law. Now, why do we do this? Quite simply, we do this because something becomes more important to us than God. Our politics, our party. Becomes more important. I care more about getting my point across about my political affiliation than I do about my neighbor, than I do about my Christian brother who disagrees with me, than I do about God. We would never say it, but our actions show that's what we believe. When you go on your tirade on Facebook, everyone else be damned. Here's my opinion. Here's the right way. Jesus says, You're a murderer, and you will be liable to the hell of fire. Why do we do this? Something becomes more important to us than God. Listen to this, if our job is more important and meaningful to us than God, we will murder those who get in our way. We will want to kill their reputation. We will envy them in our hearts and hope and pray for their downfall and our exaltation. If your personal happiness and comfort is more meaningful to you than God, you might terminate, hear me, if your happiness, if your comfort, comfort, if your desire for an easier life is more important to you than God, you might terminate an unwanted pregnancy. I've heard of Christian parents who look at their child and their child has walked in the way of the world and their child is now pregnant and not married and the, the weight of that of that. Of The consequences of those actions are falling upon the parent. And so the parent says, honey, I don't want you to ruin the rest of your life. I'll take you to the clinic. I'll take care of this for you. You're a murderer at heart. Your comfort, your daughter's comfort is more important to you than God and the glory of God and the image of God in the life of that baby. What a foolish society that talks about women's rights and they don't talk about the right of the newborn, the right of the fetus, the right of the child in the womb. No one has a right to an easy life. Who told you that? No one has a right to an easy life. No one has an easy life. This world is cursed. Yes, taking care of a loved one who's terminally ill is difficult. Yes, watching your parents, watching them demise and watching their their mental cognitive function slowly decrease into dementia is hard, is difficult. And yes, we're called to value their life to the moment they take their last breath and we're not called to do anything that would make it shorter. To do so for your own comfort, your own peace of mind, is demonic. To walk by someone being attacked in the street and to look away for fear of your own safety is wicked. It's weak. It's not the heart of a Christian. All of this, Jesus says, is breaking the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. Breaking the heart of that commandment. Jesus says here in no uncertain terms, if your unrighteous anger has led you to label your Christian brother or sister as stupid or has caused relational breakdown between you, you are guilty of the sin of murder. The seed of murder is in your heart. Now I realize very few people want to hear a message like this. Jesus says that murderers are liable to judgment. That when we break this commandment, we become guilty and deserve his eternal wrath in hell. There isn't a way for us to go back and change the past. Here's here's what I know. I know every person, hear me, every person in this room is a murderer. Murderer. Every person in this room, according to Jesus' standard, the Son of God, everyone in this room has committed this at one time in their life. And there is no option to go back in time and do something to fix it. Nor is there any behavior in the future that could make up for what you've done. And this is how we must feel to hear the gospel Every time the gospel is preached, it should sh- sound like a cannon going off. If it doesn't, it hasn't been preached rightly. If you get just, oh, Jesus loves me, and he's just, I get the warm fuzzies, then you didn't hear the gospel. We saw last week, the law is meant to lay us out. The, wall, the law is meant to back us into a corner where we ha- the only thing we can say is guilty. And then the gospel comes in. Then the gospel lifts us to the heavens. Listen to this. How can murderers be made right? How can murderers be healed? How can murderers be redeemed? A life for a life. The son of God, Jesus, came to this earth and treated every single person he met with dignity, value, and worth. He looked down on no one. He spoke ill of no one out of hatred and animosity in his heart. He never killed anyone with his hands or with his mouth or with his heart or with his words. Jesus was the kindest, most gentle man to ever live. And what happened to him? He was murdered in our place to pay the price for our sins so that we could be forgiven. The wrath. Of God that should fall upon us for murdering fell upon Jesus. Jesus was treated like a murderer so that murderers like us could be treated like sons and daughters. I want you to hear this. The only way for you to be forgiven. For you to be treated like a son or daughter and to be brought into the family of God and forgiven of all your sins and given a whole spiritual new life on the inside is for you to repent of your sins, to turn from your way of living and turn to Jesus and place your faith and hope and trust in Christ. What does repentance mean? It means we confess our sins with our mouth. We ask Christ into our heart to the power of his spirit. We believe in Jesus and then listen, we begin to the bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What does that mean? Christian, it's not enough just to ask Jesus, oh, please forgive me for my sins. Jesus shows us right here. That the temple was a very structured built building. It was very hard to get into where you were actually going to, uh, the altar, where you're actually going to do your sacrifices. There was multi-layers and multi-steps, and it took you a while to get there. Plus, most of the time, the temple was a, a day or two walk away. So what Jesus says is here is you, you make your day or two march You get into the temple, you go through all the rigmarole that you got to do, cleansing yourself, purifying yourself, getting through to the inner place. And now you're about to make your sacrifice. And you remember that you've sinned against your brother. You stop what you're doing. This is a complete inconvenience. This is anti-American right here. Stop what you're doing. Go back home. Ask for forgiveness with your brother. Jesus says, God is more concerned with what's going on in your heart and your relationships than what you're about to do in my presence. That's bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. You spoke ill of someone? You've got hatred in your heart towards one of your Christian brothers and sisters? You stop what you're doing. You walk across the room. You say, brother, forgive me. I've sinned against you and I've sinned against God. That's the mark of a Christian. I don't care what prayer they're prayed. I don't care how many times they've been to church camp. I don't care how, how many times they come to church. Can you repent like that? That's evidence of the spirits at work in your heart. Jesus says, don't let sinful anger lead to hate and broken relationships. Repent to God and repent to your brother or sister. See, our Christian faith, out of this kind of heart, our Christian faith is meant to flourish in all kind of love and good deeds. We should be working to honor life, protect life, and resist the spirit of our age that dehumanizes people to little more than self-conscious animals. That means we should be supporting the pro-life movement, pregnancy resources, and Iowa right to life. This is why we adopt. This is why we serve 180. This is why we become safe families. This is why we work for racial reconciliation in our city. This is why we have a lot of children. This is why we oppose abortion. Every human life is made in the image of God and has inherent dignity, value, and worth. And our faith Moves us to work and protect that image at at the cost of our own comfort. Jesus was the Lord of life. He provides the life that can rescue us from our murderous selves. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the bread of life that we must eat in order to taste everlasting life. But no one can eat the bread of life unless that bread has first been broken. It reminds us again that the only way for sinners to experience new life is for Jesus, the Lord of life, to experience death in our place. And so we come this morning to the Lord's table, a table that he, on the night that he was betrayed, set before us, that, was, that we're to do forever until he comes back again. He knew he was going to take our place. He knew he was going to be treated like a murderer in the place of us. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Jesus was broken. So broken people like us could be made whole. He took the cup of wine and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood that's poured out to cover our sins. Jesus was poured out so that we could be filled up with his Holy Spirit. And so as we come to the table this morning, this is what Christians remember. We come repentant. We come confessing. There is, nobody's accepted at this table Only murderers. Only murderers who've put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. This is a table for forgiven murderers this morning. And we come and we remember the work that he's done to cleanse us, to heal us, and to adopt us. Father God, we come to you this morning. We have no hope in ourselves. We have no hope. We hate others. We cut off relationships because of it. We speak evil of others. We deem ourselves right and good and true and others as bad. And you say, Jesus, that that's the seed of murder in our hearts and we confess it to be true and we confess it to be true of us. But that does not lead us to despair it leads us to the gospel. Our only hope is in Jesus Christ who took our place for us and now gives us his righteousness as a gift. Would you give us the faith to believe it for your glory and our good? In Jesus' name, amen. Those who are helping me serve, would you come down this morning?